0: If you take your Bibles this evening, we're going to turn open to the book of 2 Timothy. If you're using a pew Bible there, it's on page 995. 2 Timothy and 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 2, but especially verse 2 there. So remember what we're doing is we're walking through kind of the vision for URC, and here in the evenings we're looking at what it is that we're trying to focus on uh, these next three to five years. We're doing all kinds of ministries. We're continuing to proclaim Christ, continuing to grow in Christ, as we spoke about this morning, continuing at, by God's grace to advance the mission of Christ as we go forward. And these evenings, what we are looking to do is kind of boil it down. Okay, all those three things are true. They've been true of URC historically. They're going to be true of URC by God's grace as we go forward. But over these next three to five years, where is it that we're seeking to invest more of our resources and time and energy? And we looked first last week at church planting, and this week we're going to look at our fellowship program, and then next week we will look at university ministries. So this evening we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, but we need to go back to verse 1. So Let me pray before we open God's Word together. Father, we do pray that you would teach us this evening from your holy word, that you would hide your eternal truths in our hearts, and that we would be delighted this evening to think about you using us as a church for the good of the greater church, even to the ends of the earth, as we've discussed already this evening. Oh, what a privilege, and what a responsibility. May we hear it tonight, and may it resonate with us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust, the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. So thinking about the fellowship program uh, this evening, we'll get there in a second, but what we're seeking to do is just be good stewards of what God has given to us. And uh, it could be that we don't have this program beyond these next three or so years. That's okay if that's God's will. But it seems like right now it, it's what He's put on our plate. Uh, And so we want to look at that together this evening. I'm going to walk you through that a little bit. But let's, let's look at the passage first. Paul begins our passage with encouraging Timothy. He says to be strengthened by the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. In many ways, that's just an echo of what we looked at this morning. He's just saying to Timothy, grow in Christ. Grow in the grace of Christ. He's encouraging him to keep on keeping on. But the sentence continues in verse 2. There's another charge that immediately follows that. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now let's think about what, what's going on here and what occurred even before this. Paul... The great apostle to the Gentiles was not always the great apostle to the Gentiles. You will remember that he was the great persecutor of the Christian church. You'll remember that he was a zealous Pharisee. And in Acts chapter 7, we meet him for the first time as he is standing by as Stephen is being martyred and he is being stoned to death. And we're told that Paul stood there His name was Saul at the time. And Saul stood there approving of the fact that Stephen was being stoned to death. And then we go over to Acts 8. And there Luke, the disciple of Paul, writes this. He says, Saul, that is Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But then we go into Acts 9. Glorious, wonderful Acts 9. Where Saul is on his way to Damascus. On the road to Damascus. And he is on his way to go and round up more Christians. And imprison them. maybe even put them to death. And the Lord Jesus Christ thunders from the heavens. And calls to him. And in a moment. He is struck. And he's converted. And he goes from Saul, the persecutor of the church, to Paul, the Christian, in a moment. And the Lord Jesus calls him in that moment to go out and to preach the gospel. What he has been converted by, he is now to go out and he is to preach. And Paul will immediately start proclaiming Christ in the synagogue at Damascus when he gets there. He says this about himself in Galatians 1.15 and following. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And then he says this, I did not immediately consult with anyone Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. And he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. As Paul will say in verse 12 of that first chapter of Galatians, he did not receive the gospel from any man, nor, he says, was I taught it, but received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul is implying that he never consulted with any of the other apostles about the gospel. He was taught it by the Lord Jesus Christ just as all the other apostles were. went into Arabia, and it was only three years later that he met with Peter and then James, the brother of Jesus. He's clear that Jesus taught him the gospel. I tend to agree and think most scholars are right that they say what he did in those three years is he was being taught by Jesus as he studied the scriptures. And so Paul has the same walking with Jesus. Three years, just like all the other apostles had three years of walking with Jesus before they were sent out to minister the gospel. He's equipped just like them. He then was sent out to proclaim the gospel to others. Now there would be a day when James and when Peter... And when John and when the Apostle Paul himself will die, and so they were commissioned by God to impart this truth to the generation that would follow them. They entrusted the gospel to faithful men. So you have Barnabas, and you have Apollos, and you have Titus, and you will have Polycarp as a disciple of John, and you have Timothy, who Paul will take underneath his wing and who he will disciple, faithful men. Now we know that Timothy received the gospel, as Paul will say at the beginning of 2 Timothy here, he will say, you received this good deposit. He received it from his mother and his grandmother, from Eunice and Lois. They were the ones that gave Timothy the truth of the gospel. What they began, Paul then discipled. And he takes Timothy underneath his wing. He will say immediately after speaking of Eunice and Lois in the beginning of this book, he will say, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. They began the work. Paul continues the work. And now he charges Timothy this. Entrust to faithful men what you heard from me. Timothy is a pastor. He's been called to preach. Now, the word goes out to everyone. But Paul's concern here is that Timothy would entrust this word to men, to faithful men. Notice, notice that, faithful men, we'll come back to that, but men who will teach others also. Entrust this message to men gifted with the Spirit-wrought gift of teaching. That's my charge to you, Timothy. (coughs) And before we go on, I want to just recognize that this is how God has always chosen to work. This has been true from the beginning, and this will be true to the end until Christ returns. I often think this is one of the great Signs that the gates shall not prevail against the church is that God always raises up the next generation of leaders, of preachers and teachers that will minister to God's people and will lead them. And he always raises up faithful leaders for his people in the next generation because death steals leaders and sin steals some other leaders. And so he raises up new leaders. Moses, the great deliverer of God's people from Egypt, a man of such incredible signs and wonders and will be a great deliverer, dies. And God raises up Joshua. You have Elijah, this great prophet who can even raise a a widow's son from death and who can stand against a myriad of prophets, false prophets, and the Lord takes him home. And God raises up Elijah. Elijah. God continually works this way. It amazes me, but He chooses to use people to change people. The issue is whether the church actually invests and rightly informs the next generation of leaders. There will be leaders in the next generation of the church. That's going to happen. God raises them up. The only question is whether they are going to be faithful leaders whether they are going to be able leaders. And that is not a given. And that is Paul's concern in our text. What you have heard from me I've passed it on to you, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. There are all kinds of people that heard the Apostle Paul, but he's concerned here with leadership in the church, specifically teachers, pastors, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Those two things mark these men. These men are to be pious, faithful, And they are to be men who are equipped, able. Entrust this truth to faithful and able men. Those two things. When a generation of the church is led by faithful and able men, it will be fruitful. When a generation of the church is led by unfaithful or unable men, it becomes a wasteland. Ezekiel 34 details one of those times when the church was a wasteland, all because of the leaders. The Lord says this to Ezekiel, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, He says. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, And with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. Where there are poor shepherds of the sheep, and that is what pastor means, shepherd. Where there are poor shepherds of the sheep, the sheep scatter, and great, great harm is done so Paul is concerned. He's concerned about Timothy entrusting this truth to faithful men because it means either the thriving of the church or the destitution of the church. This is why so much of the New Testament Scriptures are filled with instructions for leaders in the church. see the same in Jesus. Some of us have trouble understanding why is it that Jesus is so tender and he is so patient with the tax collectors and with the prostitutes. And yet he's so harsh with the Pharisees. Why is that? Because they styled themselves the shepherds of God's people. And Jesus looked out at the people of God and he was mourning. Because he said all these people, the nation of Israel, are like sheep without a shepherd. These Pharisees were just looking out for themselves. And they were heaping burdens upon the people. There's a severe cascading effect that occurs when poor leadership sits atop the church, whether that is ruling elders, whether that is teaching elders, pastors. It's like the picture of a mudslide. As they teach or model or disciple, their corruption and their sinfulness flows out like those first pebbles in a mudslide, and then you just have this cascade of a mudslide that takes over the entire mountainside. The reverse is also true. When there are faithful leaders in the church, and when they are modeling and discipling and teaching, it's used by the Lord for a bountiful harvest. See this over and over again. The whole church becomes affected. And the negative, when that happens, sometimes a whole denomination, sometimes a whole branch of Christ church, sometimes a whole nation can become a wasteland, but the reverse is also true. We've seen that historically. And it just takes a few faithful leaders to change a landscape in a church, in a denomination, in a country, in an entire region of the globe. I've been talking about David Livingston going to Malawi. Just the impact that one faithful man preaching the word had in that country for generations. The cascading effect. So Paul wants Timothy to entrust this truth to faithful men and able men. Faithful men who love God, who love His word, who love His people. Not men who are looking to increase their own star, not men who are looking to be praised, not men who are looking to be celebrated, not men seeking to erect their own kingdom, but men who see themselves as servants of Christ and want to pour themselves out for the sake of His kingdom, and for His people, faithful men. That's why the requirement for the office of elder in the church is almost all matters of character. Every single qualification except that one, able to teach. All the rest is character. But not just faithful, they also need to be able men. Able, as Paul was saying in 2 Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth. Men who are equipped to teach. They understand doctrine. They understand theology. They understand hermeneutics. They understand effective communication. They understand leadership. Men who can exegete the word who can articulate the word, who can apply the word in a helpful way to God's people. Men who know how to be clear and concise and helpful to God's people. And that is not born. It just isn't. It takes formation. So Moses invested in Joshua and it shaped a nation. Elijah invested in Elisha and it proved essential for the next generation of the people of God. Paul is invested in Timothy and the torch was carried forward and now he's telling Timothy, you are to invest in the next generation. It is in Paul's mind one of the most important things that Timothy and the church in Ephesus should concern itself with. Trust this truth to faithful men that will go out. It's not an exaggeration to say the church rises and falls with its leadership. I, can, uh, I remember I was first coming into the PCA. I was doing a pastoral internship, and I sat down with uh, my mentor, uh, one of the founding fathers of the denomination, uh, Paul Settle, and uh, Reverend Settle was sitting across from him. He was a chairman of the steering committee that formed the PCA, and so he oh, knew everybody in the PCA, and all the ins and outs of it, and so I remember sitting across from breakfast at him uh, one day before I had uh, finished my internship, or even started my internship, and and. As there's always been, there's always tensions, always struggles in the church, and the denomination. And I was watching all that and listening to people and saying, oh, the PCA is not going to survive. It's going to divide. And it's going to wander and it's eating itself. And I remember sitting across from Reverend Settle and I said to him, Reverend Settle, I I said, I'm struggling. Uh, Do you think it's worth going into the PCA? think it's going to survive and remain faithful. And he said to me, he mentioned, he said, Jason, as long as there are men such as, and he mentioned one man's name in our denomination. He said that the church will be fine. And I walked away from that breakfast, and I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. I thought that is so Foolish. You're putting your trust in men. But all of these years later, I look back, and he's exactly right. People follow people. We follow leaders. That's what we do. God uses people to change people. So truly, leaders can have the greatest effect for good or for ill within churches, within denominations, within entire theological movements. He uses these people. When a generation of leadership lacks such men, the church is devastated. We can trace that biblically. We can trace that historically. We can also trace the exact opposite. When a generation of leadership has such men, the church prospers. John Witherspoon, when he was president of Princeton, I, I loved this because I often thought it and then I found someone that's much smarter than me that, act, that actually said it. And he used to say this over and over to his students that when the church prospers, it was noticeable that her leaders flourish in clusters, each helping one another. It's Just clusters of leaders that are faithful enable men. We believe as a leadership in this church. If you don't know it, you have faithful and able men as your elders in this church. Best elders I know of. Not blow and smoke. Best elders I know of. Faithful and able men. And as we're thinking about this vision going forward over these next three to five years, what is it that we hone in on? As we were talking about this, we said, look, This seems to be something that the Lord has put upon our plate. This seems to be something that He is directing us for. How can we help the church? How can we help the church outside of our own? It just seems like what He's been doing is He's been leading different men to us that we can equip these men to help the church outside of ourselves. We should be investing in that, training the next generation. Why? First, this has historically been a concern for URC. For those of you that have been here long enough, you'll remember this is one of the key reasons that we left the RCA and entered into the PCA. It's because we had men that we were training up for the pastorate, good, faithful, godly, gifted men, but we couldn't place them anywhere. There was nowhere to send them. But we saw that as part of our mission and part of our charge and part of what we should be as a church. So we went into the PCA, at least in part, for that reason. Second, we want to be a good steward of what the Lord has given to us. Again, the Lord could take all of this away tomorrow. This church could disappear tomorrow. And that's the Lord's will, so be it. But right now, what we have, we want to use for His glory. We have the resources. We have a firm foundation of ministry. We have many different ministry areas here where people can get plugged in and just labor in different realms with internationals, with undergraduate students, with youth, with 300 children that work their way through our West Wing down there, with All of you with senior saints and with newborns and with women that care about the truth of the Scriptures and raising their children, and men that want to live godly lives before God with elders that truly shepherd the flock of Christ, truly labor that way. True Presbyterianism, as Evan was saying. We have all of these resources. It seems that it's good stewardship. We have too much to simply use it for ourselves. Third, because of this, we have opportunities like few other churches in our area. We have been talking about it as there are these concentric circles. URC, we have responsibility for URC here, for the people that are in our congregation. And so, as we were talking about this morning, we're seeking to grow in Christ together. It's also true, though, that we have a responsibility outside of URC for our backyard. Our primary mission field is the campus of Michigan State University. We have that, and we have our entire Lansing community that we're responsible for. But beyond that, we have some responsibilities for our state, for our region. Beyond that, our our denomination nationally And beyond that, to the ends of the earth as we seek to send out missionaries. And as we seek to, by God's grace, plant an entire denomination in Malawi. And as we look at that, we think that God has put us in a place where it seems like, with these resources and being good stewards of that, that we should do things in these concentric circles going out. One of the best ways that we can do that is to train up men, give them experience, invest in their persons, and then willingly send them out. Train up men and women to go out and do college ministry and to go out and to be missionaries to the ends of the earth, to lead in youth ministries and to counsel. We've seen this happen over the past years. Seems like, again, what the Lord's put on our plate. Uh, Dave Hinckley shot me a picture this afternoon uh, from our middle schoolers who were on retreat this weekend. And they were on retreat with some of the other churches in our presbytery, the Great Lakes Presbytery. And, and Dave sent me a picture. And he said, "You should be encouraged by this." And it was a picture of seven adults that were on this retreat. Representing five different churches, all of them key volunteers in the youth ministries at their five churches, and all of them from URC. We've trained them out and we've sent them out. Now they're impacting children in other places. Want to keep sending out we want to be a populating church where people come here, they come to faith here, or they grow in their faith here, and then they spread out to other churches and provide leadership and service there. Lord, has always, it seems, used URC this way. And it seems like right now, don't know why, but it seems like right now he's using it in this particular way with especially training up pastors. We want to be, by His grace, a conduit for bringing more and more men into the pastorate. One of the ways we feel like we can serve our region is that there is a great struggle for us denominationally to to get men to come to Michigan. It's a southern denomination. And so just to get them to come above the Mason-Dixon line, let alone to come to the upper Midwest, is a challenge. But what's been happening is is as we've been raising up men here from our own midst, and then as we've been bringing men in for the fellowship, that they've stayed or they've come back. And so it's been a conduit for accomplishing our other purposes of doing church plans, of seeking to do university ministries. And it's having an impact regionally. I wish you would all come sometime to a presbytery meeting when we have it here in January and see how many former URCers populate different churches in our presbytery now and are here. I love it at General Assembly. We do a a gathering of all those that have come through URC and been trained and now are pastoring or serving as elders in other churches in our denomination. And we buy them dinner. We may have to stop that because it's getting too expensive. It's it's just encouraging. The Lord's using this church in that regard to populate the landscape with faithful churches for this generation and next, but they need pastors. I had uh interestingly enough at Presbytery this weekend I had two pastors come to me, knowing, you know, our fellowship program saying, Jason, do you guys have a guy for this or do you have a guy for that? I just got an email on my way here tonight, a ruling elder in our presbytery. One of our former interns here at URC had preached at his church two years ago. He said, we were so impressed with him. We're looking to do a church plant, and I see that he's getting ready to graduate. What do you think about him coming and doing a church plant for us? Just a conduit to get these men back to serve in these concentric circles going out. And so we're investing in their faithfulness and ability. But that takes the entire church. And this is what you do so well. Evan couldn't even wait. He wanted to answer that before he answered my question. Just the way you've loved these Malawian brothers. And you do that with all of these interns and We'll talk about here different levels of this program. You you do that so well. And this is their testimony when they go away and when they come back. It's not about just their time with the staff at the church or just their time with the elders of the church. They talk about over and over and over your impact upon them. You having them in your homes and them seeing what a godly family looks like, your willingness to sit under their preaching and listen to them as they lead a Bible study, your patience, your encouragement of them, that, oh, you're indeed gifted. Your prayers for them. We invest in their faithfulness, and we invest in their ability. We allow them to grow in the exercise of their abilities here. My favorite, there was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor by the name of William Still uh, back in the 1940s and 50s that had a great impact, um, his church did, upon the Church of Scotland where they had all kinds of men that came through there that they trained for the pastorate and that congregation just took up that banner and wanted to be involved in that work and so they would, every Sunday night, they would have a prayer meeting for all of these men that they sent out. And they, had a, they would have a map with all the pins of all of these different pastors that they had sent out all around the land of Scotland. And it ended up being hundreds. And changed the landscape of that denomination for two generations. And it was a church that Seeking to help equip these men and pray for these men and continue to pray for these men as they went out. We invest in people because people last, programs don't. One of the greatest ways that we can impact the world for Christ is to populate with people who impact people. It blesses them, we bless the greater church. But it also blesses us, doesn't it? Our church and our ministries are impacted by them. Our lives are shaped by them. Who wouldn't say that they're richer today having heard Confex preach in this pulpit? Who wouldn't say that they're richer today from ministering and seeing the lives of and being encouraged by young men that have come through the Ben Prizers and the Joe Lukens and the Josh Dimmlers and the Nate Grossimas and the David Gruendikes and the Neil Quinns and the Ryan Potters. Who wouldn't say that? It encourages us, it challenges us, it bolsters our faith, it benefits us as a church. Again, we're seeking to become. Not to become something we aren't, we're simply seeking to be stewards of what the Lord has given to us. And so we're investing in this fellowship program as we go forward, at least for these next three to five years. Let me just quickly walk you through it, how we're doing this, so that it makes sense. We have our internship program we have what we are calling our residency program, and then we have our fellows. So the fellowship program is kind of the overarching umbrella. We have our interns, we have our residents, we have our fellows. Interns, we are a university church. And so it makes sense to us that we are grabbing college students who are zealous for the faith and seeking to train them up to have them come on as interns who are raising their support and serving men and women in campus ministry internships, men and women that are doing counseling internships, men and women that feel called to the mission field. We don't want to keep sending out missionaries without training. We want to bring them on board them a little bit and get them some training. So bring on men and women that can do an internship for a year with us or two years with us and be trained before they're sent out. It's our internship program, where they raise their support. And then pastoral interns, grabbing some of these men before they go to seminary. They raise their support, they spend a year with us, and then they go to seminary. The second program being the residents. This was not something we envisioned. It's just something that came to us. Because of the Malawi Reformation Network, and we have uh, promise and sandra Mamada and because they are in seminary and so they're doing a kind of residency where they're getting enfolded in the ministries here while they're in seminary and for the malawi reformation network guys all of that is supported by the, the malawi reformation network that's provided provides their funds and so that doesn't touch our budget here at urc But then Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary came to us and they said, listen, we like what you're doing with your internship program, with your fellowship program. We want to see you keep your guys in Michigan too. This is what we'd like to do. You're doing all of these different things with your guys. What if we started giving you seminary credit for that? And the guys come here for some classes, but they stay with you in the internship fellowship program, and they're doing it together, and they get some credits for the things that you're taking them through. And so we have first guy, Jacob Hawkins, that will do that this upcoming year. He will be a resident here, where he's in seminary full-time at Puritan, but part of that's just going to be done here as we're leading them through different practical ministry things. And then we have our fellows. The fellows in the fellowship program are like Matthew Shung and Evan Cruz who are with us. Leo that was with us before and now is at Puritan working on his PhD or Confex that was here before. And we're supporting them with some of our resources here and they're raising some support. And these are for men that are post-seminary. So uh, for interns, that's pre-seminary, pre-missions, pre-going out to do college ministry themselves or counseling themselves, pre Those that are residents are those that are in seminary. And then we have our fellows program, those that are post-seminary. And they spend a year or two years with us, and we're just kind of helping refine them, helping them get used to Presbyterianism, if it's new to them, to get their hands in a few more things before then they are sent out by God's grace. And we're hoping some of these will be church planters that we send out. And we're beginning to see that happen. We want to raise up able and faithful men. If you give me five more minutes. Able men. Men that rightly divide the word of truth. Knowing Christ and the things of Christ. Growing in knowledge. Applying that knowledge. Wisdom on how and when. When to be silent, when to speak, when to be bold, when to be winsome. How to help the hurting and the troubled and the proud and the faithful. Real ability takes real effort, real experience, real training. So we're helping them to be able men. But we're also seeking to help them to be faithful men. And I just want to close with two extended quotes on this line from two of my heroes, Dr. Samuel Miller. Dr. Samuel Miller, the second professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, said this about faithful men. Without piety, he cannot be an able minister. He cannot be a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth and giving giving to each his portion in due season. 2 Timothy 2.15 How can a man who knows only the theory of religion undertake to be a practical guide in spiritual things? How can he adapt his instructions to all the varieties of Christian experience? How can he direct the awakened, the inquiring, the tempted, and the doubting? How can he feed the sheep and the lambs of Christ? How can he sympathize with mourners in Zion? How can he comfort others with those consolations wherewith he himself has never been comforted of God? He cannot possibly perform as he ought any of these duties, and yet they are the most precious and interesting parts of the ministerial work. However gigantic his intellectual powers, however deep and various and accurate his learning, he is not able, in relation to any of these points, to teach others, seeing he is not taught himself. If he makes the attempt, it will be like the blind leading the blind, And of this, unerring wisdom has told us the consequences. Matthew 11, 15. We want to see men that are faithful, pious. It takes all of us investing in them. There's so much to give. You're such faithful people. Dr. Archibald Alexander, the first professor at Princeton, said this quoted him this morning, he was preaching this, this was one of his last sermons, and he said that he knew his own ministry was, quote, fast coming to a close, and he said this, one of the greatest consolations is to see younger ministers raised up by the great head of the church, to fill the places of us who must soon leave the stage. The need is for ministers of the highest qualification. And of all qualifications, none is so indispensable as a deep, unfeigned spiritual piety, a heart imbued habitually with the Spirit of Christ and disposed to count all things but loss for His sake. I want to raise up such men. It's such a... Small and easy investment that pays such incredible dividends. Everyone is important in the church. What happens is these men, because they're proclaiming the word week in and week out, because they're leading, they can have a monumental effect for good or for ill. And you and I, just by investing a little bit in some of these men, them rubbing shoulders with you, godly good people that are seeking to live your lives for Christ, showing them what it looks like, and allowing them to test some of their gifts on you, and you encouraging them and exhorting them and challenging them. It's one of the great ways that we can serve the greater church. It takes a whole church to do this church. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. Thankful that there have been faithful men and women that have passed on a good deposit to us down through the generations. We're thankful that you continue to call men to the office of elder, both ruling elder and teaching elder, to guide your church through the years. We're thankful for the faithful men that have preached your truth. We're thankful for, oh, the blessing has been to see so many come through URC and begin to populate churches throughout the area and even across the country and throughout the world thank you for the men even now that are in seminary. We thank you for all of these youth volunteers, both men and women, and women that are on the mission field, and men that are on the mission field, and all of these student workers that have gone out. Oh, Father, we pray that you would continue to desire to use us in this way. We want to labor hard as long as you would have us as a church, and we want to labor well, as long as you would have us as a church. We have much to learn. We have much to grow in. But we also believe we have much to give by your grace. And so may we do such to your glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.